This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come on by the site, check out our wares, maybe maybe uh, join the community if you can. That would be great. I had a... Um, uh, quite an epic length, uh, Wednesday newsletter on, um, the relationship between Ben Franklin's essay fart proudly and the current freak out over the pandemic. And maybe we'll talk more about that, um, later, but for now, um, I want to get to our guest. Otto von Bismarck reportedly said, if you like laws and sausages, you should never watch either one being made. Well, some might say what is true of laws and sausages might also be true of corporate branding on social media. In the 20th century, big corporations such as U.S. Steel, the Weiland Corporation, the Scheinhardt Wig Company, and Omni Consumer Products went to extraordinary lengths to figure out how to give that air of comfort and approachability that makes one think home, mother, friend. But they also married it to that elusive fashionableness and frisson of unobtainableness that late capitalism thrives under as it turns wants into needs. Some of these methods, proving Bismarck's axiom about sausages and legislatures, also applies to Madison Avenue, included human experimentation, animal hybridization, hypnosis, even Maoist struggle sessions. The Stanford Prison Experiment was in reality an effort to see whether subjects would choose to shock their own mothers instead of Grimace, the slow-witted purple golem from the McDonald's commercials. If you knew how many tears went into Microsoft's Clippy the Paperclip character, you'd never look at your 2003 resumes the same way again. Thankfully, things are different today. Many of these practices have been banned by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. But people still want to see inside the black box of corporate brand identity formation. That calls to mind a line from another Bismarck of sorts, an iron chancellor of industry, if you will, big Tom Callahan of Callahan Auto Parts, who famously said, I can get a hell of a good look at a T-bone steak by sticking my head up a bull's ass, but I'd rather take the butcher's word for it. And of course, that brings me to our guest today, Nathan Alaba, or as you might know him from his nom de cyber, the Steakum Twitter guy. 
Not since Abe Froman, the future sausage king of Chicago, studied under Alan Bloom has someone mixed and matched meat and philosophy so confidently. Not since Marshall McLuhan got his picture on the wall of the original Sizzler for eating a 72-ounce ribeye has the medium, or should I say meat eat both been the message and the sales pitch. Nathan, welcome to The Remnant. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jonah. Um, all right, so uh, where to begin with all of this? This is uh, Just so you know, I've had um, a lot of big-name people. I've had... Uh, I've, I've had uh, politicians, leader, captains of intellectual schools of thought. Um, uh, I've even had my own wife on this show. But I, rarely have I been this excited for an episode of, of, of The Remnant. So uh, when I tell this to people who don't know who you are about why I'm so excited to be on here, they're like, what the hell? The guy, what? And um, so why don't you explain to people who don't, go on Twitter or don't go on other forms of social media, you know, uh, TikTok, Instagram, whatever. Um, what it is you do, how did you sort of become a thing and why are you doing it? Sure. Yeah. For all the, the people that have come to their senses and stayed logged off, logged off that, uh, <laughs> that website. Um, yeah. So yeah, my name's Nathan. I work for a small family advertising agency outside of Philly. Uh, we've been representing Steakum meats for the past six years or so. And about four years ago, um, it was in the summer of 2017, we had essentially run up our annual ad budget with them and didn't have a lot going on. It was a rough year for our agency. There were, we had lost some big clients and I had a bunch of time on my hands. And uh, there was a few kind of bizarre events, um, one including uh, on the Joe Rogan podcast, actually, uh, some of his guests were shouting out Stakem on, on it was and it was his uh, 1000th episode. So it was kind <laughs> of this like big moment in like in that culture or whatever you want to call it. And um, we had spotted this out and we were like, oh, man, this is kind of like a cool brand shout out. I wonder if there's something we can do with it. And we weren't active at all on social media. We had used different platforms for ads, but we didn't have like a, a community management presence. So their Twitter account was essentially vacant. It had about a thousand inactive followers. And like I said, because we had a lot of extra time at the agency, uh, I pitched it to the people at Stakem to be like, hey, you know, we got this vacant account here. This moment just happened on this big podcast. Do you think we could mess around on it and see if there's any momentum that we could pick up or get some, you know, new fans or whatever? So because it was such low stakes, um, this is going to happen a lot. I'm sorry. No, I, 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 I encourage it, so don't worry about it. Yeah, it's, it's just natural. I have no beef with any of this. <laughs> um, they, they just said, go for it. You know, it wasn't a huge deal to them. So I just started messing around on this thing. And over the next few months, there was kind of feeling out process. You know, they were putting up some guardrails. They were feeling out like what I could and couldn't say, uh, what was appropriate or not. And just kind of exploring different subcultures on there in my free time. And uh, over the next few months, it picked up momentum, uh, eventually went viral the following January. So January 2018 for this whole verify Stakem thing that we were doing where the brand wasn't verified. And if you recall at the time uh, in 2017, there was this whole scandal on Twitter where people were mad that they had verified the, the white nationalist Richard Spencer. So oh, there was this right, whole right. like, yeah, there's like movement where people are like, you know, Twitter is verifying Nazis and, and verifying all these terrible people. 
but they're not verifying me. Like everybody kind of centered themselves in the narrative of this. And uh, so we kind of jumped on that wave and picked up a ton of momentum, got thousands of followers through it. And then eventually it concluded with a verification that January and uh, that hit, it must have been a slow news day. And it just kind of, it hit the USA Today. I think that the Associated Press picked it up and that was the first big moment where the the client was kind of like, what the what the hell? Like, <laughs> what, yeah. what is happening on this website? Because they kind of treated it like it was just like a side project up until then. And uh, from there on out, it just continued to to snowball into momentum. We just, I kept messing with it. It kept becoming more of a full-time feature of my job at the agency. And it became a, a the, the biggest leg of our advertising then through Stakem throughout 2018. And then since then, it's gone nationally viral several times, you know, top 10 trending on Twitter, featured everywhere from the Wall Street Journal to Washington Post. Uh, and it's pissed off people from across the political spectrum. It's also kind of brought together people from across the political spectrum. It's just been this bizarre thing where we um, we integrate meta analysis on like advertising. So we're very self-aware about the fact that we're advertising. And it's a meat brand that, and it's an absurd meat brand. So people kind of, <laughs> there's a novelty to it, you know, where people see the tweets and they're like, why is this like weird meat product, you know, talking about these things? And then we do this kind of cultural commentary, which is like what, what's got us the most attention in recent years where it feels very uh, Twilight Zone, Black Mirror y, you know, where we kind of talk about the issues of our day through this meat brand in a, in a very self aware, ironic, type of way. So that, that's kind of that's where it's got to be today in, in, a, in a weird roundabout sense. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to get to some of the actual, you know, meta analysis stuff. I mean, some of it's, I think, great and really interesting. But um, one sort of just obvious question that people have asked me to ask you that just, um, you know, is 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 inherent in, in this whole thing. Has it actually improved meat sales? I mean, product sales. <laughs> yeah, that's the big question, right? It, uh, yeah, it has. And luckily, this is so rare, man. I mean, this is not something most um, agencies or most brands can prove on a one-to-one -one, uh, like causal basis. But we had luckily throughout, the, like I said, we had ran our ad budget out in 2017. We started doing the Twitter stuff. So from that midpoint of the year to the end of 2018, we heavily leaned on this Twitter stuff because we started to invest more and more full-time hours into it. And um, up until I think it was the end of 2018, we started to run a couple digital ads, but there was about a year span where we weren't running anything. There was no mm -hmm. other marketing campaigns. There's nothing else going on. And we saw significant uh, double-digit increases in sales nationally on some levels uh, in that time period. So that was the first time where we were able to be like, whoa, like here's like a cl very clear uh, jump where we can't really explain it through other means. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, we've been able to track comparable, not not the same as that initial one was the biggest, I think. But um, there's been comparable bumps along the way with each of these viral moments. So, yeah, more or less, it, it's been a little tougher along the way. So now we've done a little bit more radio, done a little bit more digital ads uh, since mm -hmm. then. But in terms of like, attention i think it's pretty clear like our impression rate through like what we've done with the, with the twitter account is like it, it just dwarfs anything else that we've done so and um so <laughs> i have so many places i want to go with this so um it's interesting so i was listening to an interview i can't remember the guy's name but he's also for, i guess from your agency and he was talking to the shortenstein barone center on 
thumbsuckery and big tech or something yes, like that. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, I remember that. And uh, I think it's called Big If True. It was a good conversation. I'm not trying to be too mocking. It's just, you know, uh, it's competition. It's, it's the way you might talk about Hot Pockets, you know? <laughs> sure, I mean, you res- sure, yeah. Respect, but, you know, it's the it's the other guys. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and at first, my I was a little heart, I was a little crestfallen because I thought for a second that this guy was like, the old Twitter account handler and you're like, you were the new one, but I, I, I get, and then it made me feel like maybe this was like dread pirate Roberts where, <laughs> you know, one person takes over after another, but you've been doing it since the beginning. Yeah. I think um, if it's the interview, I, I believe it was, that's um, our account director. Um, and, and yeah, we, so I've, I've been the guy running it like hands on mm-hmm. since 2017. Since then I've had uh, a copywriter that I've, He's helped me write a couple of tweets, helped me respond to some DMs along the way. Um, but yeah, it's been predominantly me since then. So like for me, I have no one writing my tweets for me. I just tweet when I tweet, like I think most people who tweet. Um, and I constantly run into the problem of uh, letting, uh, as, as, as David Hume would say, you know, uh, letting my passions con- conquer reason um, and tweeting stuff I shouldn't tweet and then thinking, okay, I should delete that or whatever. Do you ever see someone, you know, does everyone call out Stakem or, or tweet crazy stuff that has nothing to do with Stakem that you have or are tempted to say, oh, I can't let that go by without answering. Um, or is everything kind of deliberative? Um, do, do you mean in terms of like, do I see other people's kind of like emotionally uh, charged No, no, like, do you, have you ever, or are you ever, are you ever tempted or have you ever given into the temptation ah, okay. to uh, uh, tweet angry, right? Like tweet off the cuff, or is it always sort of deliberative and considered before you tweet something out under the brand name? Oh, Jonah, yeah, it's all the time. I mean, I'm I'm human like you. I mean, when, <laughs> when you spend almost every, I mean, I spend every day on Twitter essentially through this work now. Uh, it's the the platform is inducive to those types of takes. I mean, it it, re- it rewards um, emotionally driven, provocative uh, content for better or worse. I mean, you you might get ratioed and have thousands of people yelling at you, but hey, that's engagement, and some people thrive off of that um so yeah I, I have those those moments fairly frequently and i think 99 percent of the time i'm, I'm able to kind of tether it and, and and hold myself back and, and re readjust it's actually i think taught me on a personal level even through my own personal accounts and and work uh to to really like write things into a notepad or something before i mm-hmm. post them and kind of reanalyze maybe come back to it a couple hours or a couple days later um, but yeah, no, I, I've had that urgency or that, ur- that urge to do it, but the only time I can, um, I mean, the only time in recent, I'm sure we were going to get into this anyway, but the only time mm-hmm. in recent memory I can think that I, I just let something slide like that was the Neil deGrasse Tyson interaction. And it was a really knee jerk moment that was stupid in, it was stupid in hindsight, even though it kind of all worked out. I, a friend of mine had, had tweeted at me that, you know, he had been tweeting some stuff that I probably wouldn't like. And I was, I remember that night, it was pretty late and I was at my house just, I think, playing video games. And mm-hmm. I went on the Stakem account and I saw this tweet. And I just, I, I wrote a, I just quote tweeted and said, log off, bro. Not thinking <laughs> at all. Like I, I, yeah. I knew it was provocative, but like, I didn't think that it was going to be this, you know, massive viral moment or whatever. And then of course, as it started to 
pick up momentum, I was like, ah, crap, I need to start to qualify this and, and explain what I mean. Out of context, it seems really like kind of like unnecessarily hostile and like it seems like a snipe, you know, from nowhere. Mm -hmm. So then I started to qualify it a little bit more. But that seems to be a pretty common trend, even with provocateurs to be like it's like a Mott and Bailey technique where you, know, you throw out some you cr crazy take and then it, you get the reaction you want and then you kind of reel back and be like, oh, well, actually, the more reasonable thing I was trying to say was this. It was kind of this like right. weird reverse engineering I was having to uh, to do on the spot. And that's why I tend to try to avoid those <laughs> those moments of, of giving in. So for the sake of listeners, um, the tweet in question from from Tyson was the good thing about science capitalized, which already grinds me. Um, the good thing about science is that it's true, whether or not you believe in it. And, um, and then I won't read all the follow-ups, but I, I'm entirely with you. I mean, part of my, you know, Mott and Bailey stuff is a big topic on this podcast. And, um, and one of the things that as a guy who likes Friedrich Hayek and that stuff, um, uh, the difference between what Friedrich Hayek called science, which is what you would call science, a, a process of discovery with rules and outside legitimizers and, 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 and inquiry where you're constantly questioning your own assumptions and it's a process and, and it's designed to overturn its findings, all that stuff that we agree with, that's science. And then the stuff that Tyson talks about is really scientism, where you take the language of science and you apply it to an ideological or sometimes even a religious sort of framework as an appeal to authority through you know, uh, um, sort of a stolen base kind of, of, of way of argumentation. And he does, he is, he does so much of that, that I sometimes wonder whether his Twitter persona is, is also sort of a brand, a brand management thing and mm -hmm. not actually what he thinks. Cause I don't see how you could live in the actual world of real science and, and say some of that stuff, but it's, it's, he does it continuously, you know, what he repeats sometimes the same trolling, philosophically trolling things, you know, years apart. Um, and a lot of it is that, that sort of, you know, uh, if a visitor from another planet came here, they'd be amazed to see that, you know, we, you know, you know I don't, I can't even remember what they are that, you know, that our dogs are our masters because they, you know, they make us go outside right. for them to go to the bathroom or whatever, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest issue that I've found like with that style of, of, of science, science communication, whatever you want to call it, is uh, it's very it just preaches to the audience, you know, like preaches to the choir um, and it doesn't really accomplish what I would consider the sort of um, in theory, at least the goal of like good science communication, which is like to inspire people to to want to care and want to learn more about these processes it really it's like like you said he has these kind of um these talking points that he's drilled down over his career and of course that's natural everybody it's like it's like a it's like a good preacher you know like over the mm -hmm. course of decades of, of doing sermons you, you kind of boil down your your talking points and and the things that you know get the crowd going or whatever and um, i have lines i've used in speeches a hundred times of course I, yeah I have, I have no problem with that yeah there's nothing wrong with that yeah for sure but like you said he kind of um he's kind of turned it into a, a brand almost where he like markets himself like he sells certain products with these one-liners and they're they're like you know they're zippy and and they 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 get people riled up they get his fan base feeling like some kind of sense of you know superiority or whatever and i guess you know if that's your 
goal like that that's fine but it, it's in terms of like the the sort of greater good in, in trying to get more and more people um especially people right now in the middle of the pandemic people who are skeptical of these institutions and experts you know people who uh, i'm not even speaking of like the, the people who are more anti-institution the people who have kind of already made up their mind that it's all rigged i'm, I'm speaking more to the what, what recently people have called the vaccine hesitant people or people that are maybe on the fence or maybe they have like legitimate concerns about mistakes or lies or corruption or, or what have you within these or people who got the disease. I mean, I think the biggest low hanging fruit in bad science communication has been the number of people who got COVID recovered and now think they're immune and don't need the vaccine. Right. Those are people that you shouldn't demonize. Yeah. <laughs> they have a scientific theory that is not foolish. Yep. But, you know, anyway. Yeah, no, I, I have family. I've got friends who are all in that kind of like loose, you know, boat, whatever you want to call it. And and I think that it's really, really important to, for, especially for, for people in someone like uh, Neil's shoes, who may be the most prominent and active uh, science communicator in the world right now. I mean, he'd be top three, top five easily, if, if not the, the number one. But I just think it's really He's certainly number one at ruining movies by <laughs> complaining about the bad signs. Yeah, there. right, right. Yeah, sucking us all out of the 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 sort of narration of of the movie to, yeah. to be a party pooper. But yeah, no, it's uh, I'm, I'm I'm with you on that, and that's that's what bothered me about. It. And then I've kind of had these more petty beefs with him through the brand <laughs> over the years. These just smaller things, like he loves to just harp on these kind of factoids and, and things to kind of get people going. And and again, part of it's petty on my end and on the like the brand end. It was just kind of like like a lot of brands, like like what Wendy's does on Twitter. You know, it's, at a certain mm -hmm. point, it's like we're advertising. We're trying to get attention. We'll throw some stuff out there just, you know, to get a reaction from people. Um, but it, it was kind of like a fitting intersection with a lot of the stuff that the brand had Stakem had been talking about the past year with media literacy, critical thinking, trying to get people more engaged with these topics. And then to see someone that prominent put out comments like that, it's, you know, it's, it's just discouraging and it's, it's hard yeah. to know what to, to, to make of it. I mean, the, the truly through the looking glass weirdness of this entire conversation is that you're absolutely right that it was perfectly on brand for Stakem to call out Neil deGrasse Tyson <laughs> on his bad epistemology. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's a weird thing. Um, yeah. and, um, and so I want to get to the Wendy's stuff in a second, but like, there are a lot, I mean, let me put it this way. Um, if I was going to make a list, I'm not in advertising. Um, um, but if I were going to make a list of, Oh, of beats, as we would say in journalism, for the revitalized Stakem account to like inject itself into. Um, I could I could come up with a whole bunch of quirky things. I I'm a quirky guy, right? Science communication and 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 and, and, and epistemological humility and the dangers of certitude and these kinds of questions would not be in my top three. <laughs> Um, what, what was the process by which you decided, you know, corporately that, okay, this is going to be, you know, you know, fine. We'll let, um, you know, spicy Jamaican beef patties talk about the treaty of Versailles, but we're going <laughs> to go with this stuff. What was the, what was the thinking in this and how did you sell it? So that guy's from a, a food company. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so it kind of 
take us back, you know, a few years back toward the the 2017 when we first got started on all this and we were building out sort of foundations of, of what we wanted this brand voice to be. And I mean, to be honest, anyone who was following the account at that time, and especially people that were following it then to now can see a lot of it was just experimenting. A lot of it was just sure. me and, and our agency just figuring out, you know, what what are the guardrails here? What, how far can we go? What should we be talking about? And um, we, we'd always built it on the fact that, you know, Stakem as a company, you know, it's a, it's a PA regionally based company. It's not this like international meat corporation or whatever. It's, it's fairly regional, even though it has semi-national distribution. Uh, it's a family owned company. It's been around since the 70s. There was this kind of like nostalgia to it. Mm-hmm. And um, we really, we were just trying to figure out, you know, like, there's, it's got this family value thing to it, but it's also got an edge to it. Like it's been in SNL, it's been satirized so much over the decades. Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 a very bizarre, like sort of like popcorn chicken. Like it's a bizarre food product. So like there's not, we can't like treat Which, it. according to the Wikipedia page, was also invented by the inventor of Steakum. Yes, correct. Yeah, Gene Gagliardi. Yeah, he's uh, he was a, yeah. a food innovator, and um, yeah. So so that that's it created this like weird sort of uh, paradox where we were like, you know, we wanted to be make it. Uh, family friendly and and community oriented, but we also want to make it kind of edgy and out there. And that's just where it landed. And we just kept figuring out topics we could talk about. But I think as it kind of exploded in, in those early years, and we were we were exploring more and more topics of of cultural commentary and whatnot. The thing that we had noticed, because and I'm sure if you've noticed spending every day on Twitter, almost every day on Twitter. Um, especially in 2017. Let's just say too much time on Twitter. Far too much time. Uh, <laughs> and in those in the years 2017, 2018, this was like even more, may, maybe not more so to, than today because it's kind of who's to say it's kind of been building. But at at a, at a, a height of political polarization at that time, especially on Twitter. And you know when you're spending every day on these platforms and every week there's a new trending topic, there's something crazy in the news that's making everybody mad. Everybody's fighting about it online. And as a brand, you know, we're not able to engage in like partisan politics and you know, we're not there mm-hmm. to to say, hey, we're taking a stand on this issue or that issue. So we, we had kind of figured out, you know, as a kind of quirky, weird figure in this space, you know, we could potentially bring people together and depolarize in some ways. And that's where a lot of these subjects came to play. We were like, whether it was critical thinking, media literacy, kind of this like, pseudo both sidesism commentary yeah. you know trying to like appease as the, the most amount of people possible with the things that we were talking about and we just found over time that it really did work i mean it was de-escalating a lot of tensions we were getting a, we were getting attention from people all across the political spectrum from pretty far left to pretty far right in um in this commentary aspect of, of our of our posting so over time, it just continued to refine and refine and refine. And, you know, along the way, there's certain people that have made it their, you know, they, they've essentially stuck out that, you know, this brand is terrible for society and humanity and, and they're just bad. So we've got like, we've made enemies along the way for kind of doing this weird commentary. But we've also, I think, made inroads to, to several ideological communities that would not have been possible, you know, if we had either one played it safe or two kind of gone the more politicized route that a lot of brands go or they pick like in a specific issue like Black Lives Matter or Israel Palestine or whatever it might like they Mm -hmm. pick something to kind of hang their hat on to be like, oh, everybody's talking about this right now. We're going to kind of jump on this. And then when the moment passes, you never hear from them again on it. Like we didn't want to 
do that with any one issue because then it felt really disingenuous to what we had been building on for the past few years. So we wanted to make mm-hmm. sure we were kind of playing in, in a space where it wasn't explicitly political, but it was political enough that, you know, wherever you wherever you stood, you could kind of see yourself in those posts, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it just, I mean, the counter, I mean, among the counterintuitive things in all of this is that speaking in broad stereotypes, which always are going to have some level of unfairness in them, if I were going to try to come up with the social demographic that is most neatly in the Stakem customer base, we are talking about a um, delicious, I will put it out there, but a processed meat, frozen processed meat thing to let people make cheese steaks at home. That's basically yep. what Stakem originally was, right? And is. And um, uh, their chief concerns, again, Speaking broadly, I am sure there are plenty of people in Cambridge, Massachusetts, teaching 19th century literature who love a good homemade cheesesteak sandwich with steakum. But speaking broadly, the people most likely to buy your product are not particularly upset about, you know, uh, misinformation, uh, partisanship. Uh, there, there are, I would guess, largely on one not one side because you know i'm sure there are again i'm sure the partisan question goes down is the partisanship is distributed pretty broadly but the concentration of it you would not think that this is the the beat that that stakem should want to grab right i mean it's it's so it's is it i guess i guess the question is was this deliberately immediate was this deliberately a play to elite influencers to get people talking about Stakem and less about actually bringing brand awareness directly to the consumer. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. To that point, I would, I probably would never use the word deliberate with almost any of the stuff that we've done only because a lot of it has been a lot of chance, a lot of luck with the timing of this stuff. And also not know us not knowing who was going to resonate along the way. Like a lot of this has just been us figuring out, you know, where, where can we get into, you know, what, what subcultures will be open to what we're, we're doing here. So, but in terms of, um, yeah, like our consumer base, I would say, I, I don't know the explicit, you know, political demos per se, but obviously it's a product that's, it's really popular among, let's just say broadly the working class, whether that's mm-hmm. people in inner cities, whether it's people in the rural South, you know, we have pretty strong demos across the spectrum in that way. So center left, center right, et cetera. But, um, to your point, it's not a lot of people who are like media savvy. They're not culture warriors. They're not people who are in these elite institutions, you know, making a hundred K a year doing whatever. So that's definitely in terms of like who we've kind of latched onto incidentally through this work that's just happened. And that's been an interesting part of expanding the consumer base, to be honest, because in, in large part, the goal with us, um, again, I say goal, not in, in total like intentionality but like along the way us working on twitter and online in general it's been like how can we ex- how do we make this product relevant to younger people how do we make this product relevant to the sort of new online media sphere that's ne- either never heard of this product hasn't heard of it in decades doesn't care about it hates advertising you know how do you like get into this really w- what's essentially an obscure space i mean you know twitter it really is kind of like the elite platform i mean it's it's a it's got mm-hmm. a much smaller smaller user base than 
Facebook, Instagram, even Snapchat, and etc. But it controls a lot of the media narrative. It's where the journalists are. It's where the politicians are. Mm -hmm. So us kind of playing in that space really led to us just kind of naturally picking up a lot of earned media through journalists and writers and YouTubers and podcasters, people wanting to talk about the product, write about it. So we kind of just fell into that incidentally and then just continue to play into it. And then, yeah, we've watched new demographics emerge, whether it is the kind of Zoomer generation or these kind of more, like you'd, you'd said, these more uh, up, upper earners and, and people who work mm -hmm. in media that would not have traditionally been our target demo by any stretch. One last thing on the Neil deGrasse Tyson, Tyson type stuff, not necessarily just about him, mm -hmm. but like um, one of the complaints I used to have um, about uh, John Stewart, uh, who was, you know, was the host of the Daily Show, supremely talented guy. But he used to do this thing where he would be really aggressively barbed and political and draw blood. Um, you know, very effectively because he was really good at it. And, and then when there was pushback, you say, Hey, look, I'm, I'm just a comedian. Right. Right. Um, right. and yeah. you know, my show comes on after a puppet show and you know, you're the guys who do this professionally kind of thing. And it was very Martin Bailey. It was like, you know, he would, it was, as we used to say in the early two thousands, it was clown nose on clown nose off. Right. And mm -hmm. there, as much as I am on your side on the merits of like spats with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I encourage you to, you know, you're, you're, you're my spirit meat product when it comes to such things. <laughs> that said, you really do kind of catch people like Tyson in a Kobayashi Maru in the sense that it's a no-win situation. If they ignore yep. it, you win the dunkathon, And if they respond, they're arguing with a processed meat product. And yep. so, I mean... Do you, trap. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> do you just accept it and move on? I mean, is that just the... do? You, does it cause you to say, I'm going to only use my power carefully because it could be unfair to some people? No, yeah, absolutely. It is that kind of really bizarre. That's what I mean when we talk about like the meta analysis along the way with this stuff, because even on an interpersonal level, you know, it's made me uncomfortable over the years at certain points where I know hey, no matter what, no matter what my personal intentions are, no matter what the people at our agency uh, Alba Communications believe, you know, no matter what the people at Stakem believe, like at the end of the day, this is advertising. At mm -hmm. the end of the day, it, it's we're we're trying to sell, move product. We're trying to further a bottom line, and that can be really uncomfortable when you're, yeah, when you're, especially when you're putting those kind of like provocative moments out there, where you, where it's a it's a catch twenty two for anyone who wants to engage. It's like even the people that I'm friendly with, pe you know, people like you on the Twitter account or other public figures or other uh, other even just, you know, friends of mine in real life who maybe have like a larger following and they they engage with the brand. It puts everybody in this weird situation where, yeah, like there's a mutual, sometimes there's a mutual beneficial aspect to it where if they engage, they get some engagement and then it's kind of good for them too. But then you, you also get this kind of icky feeling of like, man, I just like kind of fed into an ad. Like this was this whole thing is like a, it's a marketing gimmick at the end of the day, no matter what anybody's intentions involved are so that's definitely something that's always on my mind and i'm always trying to be careful you know just with with, with how we, we play into that because to your point of john stewart i mean that that's kind of like the he was in a lot of ways like the kind of prerequisite to, to a lot of um the sort of provocateur nature of, of what we see online and it, it is just a difficult 
yeah, it's, it's just difficult to navigate on like a, an ethical level. Like if you can even say there's any ethics involved in this at all, it's really just kind of better or worse outcomes, I guess you could say. But yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, again, I don't, I don't, have, I don't know I, what to, it's tough. I don't have much sympathy for Tyson for precisely the reason I sort of suggested earlier. He's in advertising too with his tweets. I mean, like when you, he, he is a brand. Yeah. He, when you recycle the same supposedly pithy, um, bon mots about, you know, the, 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 the nature of science and whatnot repeatedly, or you keep, you know, I mean, one of my great peeves is, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, he proposed creating a new country called Rationalia that yeah. was based purely on reason. And, um, which I have to say that the Simpsons episode that basically um, created a technocracy out of Springfield where Lisa Simpson and the, uh, the three other smart people ran it was the best possible rejoinder or pre to it. <laughs> but, um, okay, so uh, all that said, all right, so there, I'm sure neither of these are the case, but there are one, or, one of two scenarios that I want to be true. And, and you tell me, you can disabuse me of both. One is what I would call the anchorman fight scene scenario where um, your account, Wendy's, Hot Pockets, all of these other ones who are trying to do something similar to what you guys are doing, you all are incredible, intense rivals. And if you ever see each other in public, you might plunge a trident into one of their chests. The <laughs> other version of the scenario is sort of out of Thank You for Smoking the the movie about the tobacco lobbyist where um he and the other um evil uh lobbyists were all great friends and they all had lunch together yep. all the time all and it was, it. they called themselves the merchants of death and it was the um the tobacco lobby the i think the booze lobby and the gun lobby or something like that and um and so the other scenario is like all you guys like live in a group house and it's wacky and it should be an mtv reality show I suppose neither of these things are, are in reality, but like, how do you, do you have any interaction with the other people who do this weird thing that you're doing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's neither, but it's closer to the latter, I guess. Uh -huh. um, only because, again, Twitter is such a small world. It's really easy to, to find people who you know, are connected through different agencies and different in-house brand teams. Um, so, over the, so when I first started doing this stuff in 2017, I didn't know anybody. I didn't mm -hmm. know a single other social media manager, I had no connections to the industry or whatever. And um, I, I didn't know anything about the history of like Wendy's or Moon Pie or Denny's Diner and these any of these other uh, weird Twitter accounts. So when I started working on, it, I had to kind of like, again, backtrack and be like, oh, there's like a history here. There's there's different styles of tweeting and all this. And um, I will say I did in the beginning have like rivals and it was difficult. Sometimes it was difficult to tell, you know, when the the sort of advertiser gimmick part ended and the personal part began because mm. I'd be kind of insulting Moon Pie or uh, Wendy's. And I will say it's it's funny. The um so the Moon Pie Twitter account had gone viral right when we started the Stakem stuff in 2017. So they were kind of like the punch up uh, account at the time that I was trying to to be like. You know, I was sure. trying to be like, I want I want to get better and, and be bigger than these guys. And um, over the next year, I ended up meeting the guy behind that account. We became friends. So and I, Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I did a, did a podcast with him. He's a great guy. I, st I still talk to him frequently. He's, he's still in the industry. Um, and the same with the Wendy's thing. Like I had been pretty intense with the Wendy's account. And I ended up um, getting to know a little bit the, the girl who was behind the initial Wendy's tweet. 
that was a little difference, a little bit of a different story because they have a larger team behind that account. There's several people operating it. And I did find out over time, you know, there were, I obviously won't name names, but there was people within some of these accounts that didn't like me personally, mm -hmm. like just because they didn't like my style. I thought I was a little too aggressive. Um, thought maybe I was too full of myself or whatever. Because I was, again, we, we had such lower guardrails than a lot of these other corporate accounts. So we could say and do things that were deemed kind of outside the box and inappropriate for a lot of these corporate level uh, brands and, and teams. So in the beginning, especially, I was learning like, oh, man, there's some etiquette here. I should probably learn and, and realize that there's a person on the other side of the screen who then I have come since, you know, to learn in myself, you know, when somebody is telling the Stakem guy that they want to kill them or, or, you know, kill yourself, Stakem guy, or I'm going to I'm going to come hunt you down or whatever. Like, I get these weird death threats and all the time. It's like, even though it's through the brand account, you know, I am very public. I'm very accessible through mm -hmm. the brand account. So then it's, it's a very thin veneer of like, is this toward me or the brand? It's kind of toward me personally. Yeah. So so in that process, you know, just kind of figure out, you know, how to navigate it. But it, over, since then, in the past four years, I've come to know dozens of these social media managers. We don't like there's no private rooms like with, you know, the, <laughs> the tobacco lobbyists. We're not like at least for the most part, I'm sure it happens sometimes, but like we're not like plotting, you know, these these viral moments or whatever. But there are I mean, people I would just assume you guys would be like other. on panels at, con you know, industry conventions. Yep. Together. And we are. Yeah, sometimes. Yep. And um, and I, I like to think that like sort of like in the color of money, all the real money was made in gambling in the practice room that in the green room, you guys, that's that's where the real action is. But um, so um, what are what are other brand self-aware quirky brands that that you think have figured this stuff out as well i mean like which oh, ones do you so really many. admire I, I admire is a strong word i barely <laughs> admire my own work uh, <laughs> it's it's hard to it's it's honestly hard for me to take you you talk to my wife about it like i'm always just like man this stuff is so ridiculous like it's hard for me to even talking to you, you know, it's hard to take myself seriously with this stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously cool with the work that I, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity and like the, the work I've gotten to do. But at the end of the day, like when you actually talk about it with people, it's like, man, it's a, again, a frozen meat company's advertising. It's not like a, it's not like this grand, you know, feat. So when I talk to even like with other friends of mine who are doing really well in the space, I always feel a little weird. It's like, oh, yeah, you're doing great work because I, I do think the content is great even though the work itself is a little bizarre to talk about. But there's a lot of other food type brands, you know, like um, Velveeta Cheese has been doing some really funny stuff recently. And there's a wing bar called Pluckers that uh, a friend of mine runs. And there's, uh, this, this, there's a convenience store called Come and Go, Come mm -hmm. with a K. And that they've, they've played into that pun, which is very provocative and yeah. absurd for a, for a brand to do. So there's a lot of these especially the, in the food space, whether it's restaurants or CPG brands, you know, there's a lot more space, I think, to kind of be weird and, and out there, which has been the case for decades in advertising. You know, food brands have always kind of pushed the envelope with this stuff. But then there's even uh, institutions, like even the state of New Jersey has done a lot of more humanized self-aware content the past couple of years. And there's some like like the PA Treasury, and there's like some <laughs> health department. There's a sewer. I think it's like the, I think it's the Northwest Regional Ohio sewer or something like that. It's like a, it's like a local sewer account, and they just tweet about you know bathroom jokes and 
stuff like that. It's it's pretty funny stuff. So there's there's a lot of like there's a lot of cool players in the space. Um, but it it has been weird the past couple of years because for anyone who has followed the trajectory of this stuff, you know, in 2013 it really picked up with Denny's Diner doing a lot of weird things, and there was Arby's, and then Wendy's kind of blew up in 2017. And then Moon Pie and then Stakem kind of followed in 2018. And there's been a couple of brands here and there that have stood out, but the um, the space is largely kind of uh, flooded. There's a, there's like dozens and dozens of these brands and institutions that are trying to humanize themselves now. So there's it's harder for any one of them to kind of rise above the 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 rest. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, but again, the I mean, I get what I get what you mean when you say humanize, but like. The kind of stuff, a lot of the stuff that you do with the Stakem account isn't humanizing. I mean, humanizing is not the adjective I would use because it's, you know, like I get accused of, uh, of, uh, you know, as you know, I tweet pictures of my dogs quite a bit and I do it because I think it's one, I like my dogs Two, a lot of people follow me just for the dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, and three, I think that. Twitter is such an unbelievably toxic cesspool that tweeting nice things about dogs makes the world a slightly better place. And right. I, I, and I've always been totally honest about this. I got, I got high minded incentives here and I have got just sort of, uh, entirely self-serving incentives. I have a lot of followers who follow me because of the dogs and I, I that's great. And, and that, it, if it helps me justify tweeting the pictures of the dogs out there, that's great. But I also just enjoy doing it, and that's that's fine too. And it makes some people really angry, um, because it's a sign that I'm not getting angry at the things they think I should be angry at on their timetable. Mm-hmm. And, um, but like showing pictures of my dogs or you know sharing my personal emotions, that's stuff I I would call humanizing. Talking about the the limitations of of um, ep, you know ep, epistemic closure or whatever, humanizing is not the the first word that comes to mind. It's more like reifying or intellectualizing or some highfalutin word. Um, and but I, I get the sense sometimes from looking at replies to your stuff, it elicits the same sort of anger from people because. So much of Twitter is it's 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 fueling dopamine hits. And if you break the narrative or you don't contribute to the narrative that is fueling the dopamine hits, people get, you know, it's it, people start banging at you like you're the the bar in one of those cocaine studies with the monkey and it's not releasing the pellet. Right. Um, and, the, and the monkey gets angry at the contraption for not releasing the pellet. Um, and I can't remember why I jumped on this, but. Um, I mean, I, let me put it this way. Am I wrong when I say it's, I mean, humanizing is kind of a weird word for describing a lot of what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, maybe it's hard to, maybe personifying is closer. It's mm-hmm. more just the idea. Anthropomorphizing. Of like, <laughs> yeah, anthrop- exactly. Anthropomorphizing. It's more just the idea that, you know, we're, we're trying to speak through the brand in a way that is relatable to people and doesn't feel like an ad. It doesn't feel static. It doesn't feel detached from like cultural language. And to your point, there's kind of two, the difference between what we're doing and you're doing with your dogs, there's kind of like a two prong layer, like what you're doing, the similarity that we share is the content layer, which is just, you know, we're putting out a certain type of content. And like you said, maybe it doesn't meet the the sort of expectation of what people are expecting from us that day, or just in general, 
they get mad about that. And that is what it is. The other layer for us, though, is the fact, again, that it's a brand, that it's advertising. So people have like a sort of, at least I, I would hope most people, and I think they do, at least reading from our, our responses day to day, they have a, a sort of innate skepticism or an, an innate like weird feeling when they see something like, like that they like coming from a brand. You know, it's like watching a inspirational commercial for some product that you've never heard of where you're like, oh, you might, it might be a great ad and you kind of get captivated by it. And then you get to the end of the commercial and you're like, oh man, I just got like duped by yeah, the yeah. storyline or whatever. And it makes you feel kind of weird because it makes you feel like you've been manipulated. It's this, it's this whole, you know, idea of like, you know, just, just distracting people from like what's actually going on. And that's been going on for decades. So that's, I think, the difficult dance that we have to do um, where I think the commentary angle is such a, a step further than what any brand has ever done on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Like Wendy's was probably the closest thing up until that point where they would do the roasting people where like they would insult people and that got them all this attention. It was like, wow, why is a brand insulting random people? And it felt very personal and it felt very um, just detached from what you would expect from a corporation. With us doing these like lengthy kind of like, I don't want to say self-righteous, but like you kind of mentioned, it's sort of like, it's we're elevating certain like terms and, and topics that maybe the, the average person wouldn't be aware of, even though they're not deep. These are like the way I always describe it. It's like these are 101 level um, analyses of topics like it's 101 mm -hmm. philosophy. It's 101 sociology. It's 101 economic, whatever. It's, it's not deep insight. It's just kind of like it's topics that people on a day to day basis aren't used to digesting if they're normal and like have healthy brains, unlike the extremely online people that, you know, do politics every day. So there, that's kind of like the weird extent that we took this further from other brands that I think makes a lot of people, especially the extremely online people who see this stuff all the time, it makes them really uncomfortable because they're like, man, this is it almost feels like a hijacking of, of political movements. It feels like a hijacking of, of philosophical language. It feels like exploitation of the things that you know we're trying to be serious about whether it's a science mm -hmm. communicator whether it's a politician or a pundit whatever or a journalist and we're a brand so we're like using their language to advertise and i think that tension is weird for a lot of people to deal with yeah because i mean I, this is something i talk about a lot on here is the power of shibboleths you know the 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 power of of there's certain kinds of language certain kinds of buzzwords terms phrases whatever that signal you're part of an in-group or an out-group. That's where, you know, Shibboleth originally comes from in the Bible is like being able to tell whether some other tribe were, were you know, the enemy or whatever. And the language you use is very highbrow, thinkfluencer, pretentious. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say pretentious in a bad way, but like no, I agree. a lot of pretentious yeah. people, you know, if, if someone said some of the things that you tweet about, you know, uh, knowledge and science and that kind of stuff, as a in a lecturing voice to me, I would say it's condescending and that kind of yep. thing. And I'm not saying that's what you're going to do, but there's there's that that feel to it. It's offset and, by the fact that it's it's novel from the brain. That's the only reason. Yeah, it no, no, that's, works. that's right. Yep, that's right. I mean, it's sort of like, um, you know, a dog that plays the piano really badly. For you know, you can say either, well, that dog is really terrible at playing the piano compared to a human. Or you could say that dog is amazing at playing the piano compared to all the other dogs. Right. You know, it can only play chopsticks. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, it's a dog, right? Exactly. Yep. Um, but there's this. It, I hadn't really thought about it before about how I could see it. You know, it could bother a lot of highbrow people that you're kind of 
revealing that it's not that hard. And I don't, again, I don't mean this in a pejorative way. It's not that hard to use that language, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it, like a lot of these people think that like this separates them from the unwashed when they talk that way. When in reality, as you say, it's like philosophy one-on-one stuff. And, um, and so you could see how some people, you know, some sort of overeducated types would stare at your Twitter account, the sort of the way that Homer Simpson, when he was watching, um, Garrison Keillor and he would get really angry at the TV and then you think start hitting it and say, stupid TV, be more funny. You're right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I have some rapid fire questions coming for you in a second, but, um, yeah, sure. but first, um, more broadly, given all the stuff that you do about misinformation and, and all, and all that, despite the fact that it's your livelihood, right. And, um, you know, the internet has largely been my livelihood for over 20 years. And I'm happy to say, I'm not sure the internet has been, I, I'm, I'm positive that the internet has not been a, un, an unalloyed good. It has a yeah. downside and an upside. Um, what do you think in general, would we be better off if, regardless of what it did to your business model, if we just didn't have social media? Yeah, I mean, I'm almost almost positive there. I think the the catch twenty two people like yourself and myself fall into with this this sort of topic is the fact that the internet has provided jobs and livelihoods for thousands of people that they just weren't there before. Whether it's you know Substacks, podcasts, YouTubers, writers, you know whatever it might be, it's like it's a space for intellectual discourse in a semi public, semi anonymous way. It really has never been done before in mass, at mm -hmm. least. And I think um, when I look at like the kind of broad swath, because I, I mean, I've I mean, just as you have, but like through this brand economy, I've interacted with hundreds of thousands of people over, mm -hmm. over the years. And it's like you see what it does to them. And Twitter, more than any other platform, I, I don't want to speak to all social media because I mean, a lot of it, like, how do you compare Twitter to TikTok? You know, like right. TikTok's these short videos that are mostly just fun. There, there's still bad stuff on there, but it's, you know, it's a d different analysis. Um, but for, for this, for Twitter particularly, I mean, the sort of short bursts of text limited to 280 characters, the, the rewarding of provocation and, and the sort of like punishment for nuance and mm -hmm. punishment for sincerity. Like even, even I don't want to derive into like the cancel culture stuff, but like the idea that, you know, I've been on Twitter since 2009. The idea that someone could find a tweet that I did in 2009 when I was like, however old, like 18 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And and be and in a moment of like sincerity as a kid and t 10 years later, whatever, be like trying to ruin your life over. It's just such a it's it's such a unique platform in that way. You don't see that on Instagram. You don't see that mm -hmm. on even Facebook. It's just such like a it's a bizarre place for the discourse. And I, and I do love it because I learn a ton. I, I've, I, get to I get to talk to people like you. I get to follow you know, people a thousand times smarter than me and, and learn really cool things, stay up to date with like the 24-7 zeitgeist of politics and culture. Um, so if you've got the tools and the stomach for it, it can be great. But I, I think most people don't. Like, I, think, I think it consumes most people. I think it, it ruins a lot of lives and it breaks breaks a lot of brains because mm -hmm. like we were you were alluding to this before and I'll wrap it up here this whole idea of like Stakem's commentary kind of being this almost like a condescending like like a lecture in a lot of ways what I like about being able to do that through the Stakem account is that to me it demystifies a lot of that language and it elevates people to a point where like they can want to look up those things mm -hmm. versus like 
the sort of Trumpian style of like speaking at a fourth grade level and using repetition and like simple words and trying to like use that to, to speak to the lowest common denominator, which is really effective. And obviously certain people have to do that for their audiences. But I like using more like academic language and terms that get people to kind of rise to that level because it is so gimmicky and absurd. It's like they might be feeling like they're getting lectured at. Some people might just dismiss it off out of hand because of that. But a lot of people, I think it raises them these, these kind of like nerdy terms like Mott and Bailey or whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. they they learn about stuff like that, which I think is, is cool. I, I don't know. I don't know how much it benefits society at large, but I think it's a cool opportunity to kind of elevate some of that language in the kind of common uh, parlance, which there's not a lot of opportunity to do that on an interpersonal level. Like if I were to use, like you said, if I were to use a lot of that language to just friends of mine from my hometown, they would look at me sideways and be like, mm-hmm. why are you talking like that? You know, it just it just comes off um, just even if you don't mean it to, it comes off condescending. So it's a cool opportunity for that. But yeah, I think the this, this space on the whole, like if I had to just do like an aggregate assessment, it I don't think it's doing more good than than harm. It seems yeah. it seems this the scales seem very tilted the other way. No, I hadn't really thought about this point and 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 I'm glad you didn't take offense at the condescending po- term. No, yeah, I, not at all. Yeah, because I didn't mean it that way, but it, it makes me think about how how if there's so there I mean I, okay, I've been doing politics stuff 30 years kind of thing I've been to 10 trillion panels and all of these kind of, and I'm a think tank guy all that kind of stuff and so much of the dialogue or the conversation are are sort of set scripts sort of like we were talking before about how people have certain material that they use over and over again yep and um and so you end up lending weight to some of these scripts based upon the person rather than the the text itself. And so if somebody from the other side of the partisan divide says what you, you know, some of the stuff that you tweet, you immediately discount that as, is that sort of, oh, that's just their script. If you hear it from your own side, all of a sudden it's like, hmm, there's you know, some truth to that, but that's awful highfalutin. You hear from the Stakem account, all of a sudden it kind of pierces the, you know, it's, it's kind of an emperor has no clothes thing. Yep. And people forget the point of the emperor has no clothes thing is that the kid was right, you know? I mean, like, and so, I mean, I, I do think there's a certain value to it. Um, I mean, I think there's a real value to it. Um, but it's, it's still just a really friggin' weird thing. I mean, um, yep. and I wonder if, as you're sort of saying, if, if we're going to hit the point of diminishing returns with all of this, that people will factor in, oh, brands do this to get my attention. So I no longer really have to care um, about, you know, Doritos take on, you know, Kierkegaard's leap of faith. Right. I mean, it's like <laughs> they don't really believe this stuff. It's just, you know, yeah. they're just saying that to sell chips. Um, that's, hey, that's that's my personal hope. I love raising the sky. Like, I like I we're kind of at this weird place culturally where it's happening inevitably, but I, I like the idea that peop, consumers are more self-aware that they're being advertised to, and then they can make decisions to engage or not engage with those ads based on their values. Like if they if it's something they want to reward, let them reward it. And if they don't want to reward it, they can punish it. it it's it's a it's weird. Like you're saying, it's, it's a new thing, I think, for advertising at large to be experiencing right now. And it's definitely got its uh, pitfalls in the, in the culture war space, especially. But 
I think it's it, it's better that way to be as as self aware. The more the more you lie about it, the more you're trying to like hide the fact that you're advertising. I think that's that's a tricky space to be. And maybe some a lot of people argue that is what Stakem is doing inadvertently. Even if we do constantly say we're advertising, it's kind of like an anti marketing effect where mm-hmm. pe- people then read that or hear that and they think oh, well, it's an ad. I'm not affected by it. And then that actually kind of makes them more affected by it. So there's definitely an argument to be made there. But on the whole, I think it's it's good to educate people more and, and let them be more skeptical if, uh, if if it makes them make better purchasing decisions, if that makes sense. Yeah. And also, I mean, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a novel, quirky way of breaking the fourth wall, which is something lots of places have been doing for a very long time. Yep. You know, I mean, when I first started writing at National Review long ago, I would constantly drag in the suits, you know, and, you know, which is sort of a letterman thing, you know, making fun of how, you know, my, my corporate paymasters want me to do this, that, or the other thing. And yeah, yeah. I'm being forced um, to say this or whatever. Yeah. And that kind of ambiguity, I think is sort of baked into the culture now. It's just, it, we didn't realize that it could seep into processed, frozen processed meat. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, I mean, I got, I got, Lots of meta questions, but I don't want to keep you forever. Um, but um, first of all, before I get to the the, the really relevant stuff, um, you once tweeted about your fox dog. Um, is that a breed? I, I saw it. It's a very handsome fella. Um, <laughs> is that in fact your dog? Yeah, she she's a gal. Uh, her name is Tara. She's a is a is she's a Belgian Malinois. We did a DNA test uh, last year. Is she year. really? She doesn't. But, I mean, she, she doesn't look, look like one. More like yeah, a black faced cur, you know. <laughs> yeah, like like her breed is they're typically like police or military yeah. style dogs, and she's a lot more uh, like furry. So yeah. it's kind of like she's got like a bushier tail. Um, and yeah, we we don't know. She's got her one great grandparent's a German Shepherd, so maybe that like mix it up. But yeah, it's it's a she's a beautiful dog. Does she like steak? Em? Yeah, I've fed her steak him before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, she should, right? Yeah. Um, it's her duty. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm assuming that you went through some sort of serious, rigorous, basic training of product awareness when when you took on this account. So I'm going to assume you're qualified to answer these questions. Bring <laughs> uh, them on. Cheese Whiz versus Provolone. Personally, yeah, pro, provolone. If you, if you say cheese whiz, you can get you can get beat up in certain certain areas. But but a lot of people love it. I mean, it's like you know, the, if you want that kind of like grungier, like kind of old school cheesesteak feel, I and mean, that's what a lot of people like. But I'm I'm all for the provolone. Um, will there ever be an impossible meat steakum? Ooh, that's a great question. We, to, uh, I don't know how much I can say about this. We um. Over the years, I've brought that up several times to them only because there's been a significant interest and demand on like our social media feeds. So mm-hmm. that's been in conversation. I don't know about like the impossible brand per se, because obviously that's like a specific right. vegan, whatever brand. Yeah. But yeah, no, they've, um, you know, they're always as, as a company, you know, they're always looking at different product innovations. So it's definitely it's not off the table. It's just something that's been, you know, there's a, it's one of a bunch of things that have been talked about over the years, I'll say. Um, all right. Now this is a question which I, it's, it's probably not in technically in your corporate portfolio, but it is a major issue on, 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 on social media and, um, and I have very strong feelings about it, uh, which is why I wanted to wait till the end to ask so that we didn't poison the conversation from the beginning. Uh, 
are hot dog sandwiches. <laughs> I knew I, I, it was going to be that or does pineapple belong on pizza? I was expecting one of those. <laughs> um, man, I, th- I think they are. I think they are, man. I don't know. I don't know. Because it's like it's meat in between bread. Like I, I think you get into a semantics argument past a certain point. I, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't. I, w- I don't call them sandwiches. But if we're talking pure, like uh, language, trying to define you know, what is the essence of a sandwich, I think they're they're pretty close. I don't know. Right, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm, <laughs> you know, hold yourself back. <laughs> I'm not gonna take the bait. I'm just gonna say <laughs> your 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 wrongness is is dispiriting, and it's gonna make me want to be a. Chick-fil-A Twitter account stand uh, instant, instead. Instant but, unfollow. You know. So um and uh I, I I'm only asking this because he's a colleague of mine and um uh my friend on Twitter uh, uh my, my colleague Scott Lindsicum uh asks uh would love to hear it's because you know Stakeham knows no gender. Uh would love to hear its uh take on other meat-based products, uh, e.g. Slim Jims and the new fake meat, Beyond Meat, which we talked about a little bit just now, should the feds prohibit either from being called meat at all? Ooh, that is a good question, actually. I say no, only as a marketing guy. It's Uh it's much easier to uh, play on people's sort of understanding of what meat is, you know, but, but again, I, I see the argument from the other side in terms of like being a little decisive with the language because it's not technically meat. Um, for, but in terms of like meat stuff, like Slim Jim is still meat and like Steakum is still meat, obviously. But um, right. I, don't, I don't know where I find... Like, I feel like there's like the marketing answer and then there's like the real, you know, how I, I should feel about that answer. And I, I don't know. I, I, the marketing answer is hell yeah, let me call all these things meat because it's easier for those companies and products to label themselves and, and for customers to know like, oh, this is like, this emulates fish or this emulates whatever. But um, when it comes to actual defining language, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd have to think about it some more, to be honest. Yeah, just be, uh, word to the wise, be careful. This is an issue that um, there are literally dozens of libertarian tech eggheads who feel very passionate about this um my friend uh shoshana uh uh she can work herself up into a tizzy about people trying to say that almond milk isn't milk um and all that kind of thing Mm. uh i personally it wouldn't break my heart if the regulation said that you have to put the thing like milk or meat in quotation marks uh or in scare quotes but uh I, i i don't want the guys at the Cato Institute to go nuts on me. <laughs> um, and um, um, my, I, I, just as an aside, you don't have to respond to this. I don't want to get you in any trouble. But the thing about the fake meat stuff is I remember writing a piece 20 years ago when I, I, I entertained going vegan and I read all of this PETA and animal rights stuff. And I know the arguments for being vegan and vegetarian have moved on from a lot of that but the the pure meat is murder crowd um i always sort of found it fascinating that if you go down the frozen food aisle at places that have a lot of vegan and vegetarian stuff they'll have stuff like um soy based drumsticks that are formed mm-hmm. to look like a real you know buffalo wing kind of thing and it always seemed to me that if you truly believe meat is murder there's something there's a weird ethical disconnect because like 
I think cannibalism is evil and wrong. And if they marketed chicken to cannibals by saying, tastes like real Christian missionary, I would find that to be offensive and weird. And yet to market to vegans, they market things that taste like the thing they think is a grotesque thing to eat. And that is sort of a, a murderous and evil thing to eat. And I've never really been able to figure out, I mean, we need a German word to explain this, this, this disconnect, but anyway, that's neither. I, no, I think that I can square that with the answer I just gave before, which is like, there's the marketed answer. And then there's the kind of personal ethical, whatever answer. And I think they probably struggled the same thing. Um, ironically, I'll say this, my wife is vegan and, mm -hmm. uh, she, we've talked about this a lot just in terms, because our friends may, may make the exact same points. They'll be like, you know, if we go to like a, a cookout or something like that, like we might bring veggie burgers or something for her. And um, there's always, you know, one of our friends, we all, we all have good, healthy discourses. And they'll be like, you know, like, why do you like eat things that are like, that look like, or, or use like flavoring and textures to taste like that? And I think a lot of it is just the marketing of like familiarity for people. And like, I think, they're doing like a, a sort of cost benefit analysis to be like, like you said, it's kind of ethically weird that you're emulating the thing that you're trying to protect or save. But the other side of that is you have to like bring the normies in to, to want to eat this product. And the way to do that is to create flavors and textures that are comparable to the foods that they once enjoyed or maybe still enjoy and you're trying to pull them to your side. So it's definitely a weird dilemma that I think they have to, to wrestle with. Um. All right. Well, I, we've gone we, we've gone as much time as 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 you've allowed me to take up of your time. Um, I'm really grateful that you came on board. Um, I, I know people are excited about about you doing this. Um, and I mean, do you, I mean, obviously, given that you're your client, you're never going to say I'm looking forward to moving on. <laughs> but you know, if you could add another product to your portfolio that you would want to anthropomorphize their their social media presence is there one that really speaks to you that that would um you'd love to sort of take a be at least a consultant on yeah i, I don't want to name any brands for that but I, I will say even just on this topic i would love the challenge of working on a vegan type, type brand or even like a produce type of brand because i feel like mm -hmm. these are areas that don't get a lot of uh, time in the, in the spotlight with marketing, you know, like if I were to say some other brand, like a Hot Pocket type of mm -hmm. thing, I mean, all those snack brands and restaurant brands, they're already all in, they're, they're mixed into the space already. They're already doing the weird Twitter stuff. They're doing the weird right. ads. I would love to, uh, or even like, you know, some kind of non, like some media literacy nonprofit, just some, some company or, or industry that is not really known for this type of thing. I would love to help, you know, develop, personify, you know, create some interesting uh, branding and advertising work for. So that's, that's like my hope with our agency in, in the future. I'd love to love to do that. All right. Uh, Nate Albach, did I pronounce that correctly? I never, uh, yeah, you I got it. Right. Not a lot of people get it. So it's great. And um, agencies, Alabach Communications. And, uh, and yeah, just uh, really, like I said, I really appreciate the time, Jonas. It's been a bit of fun conversation. No, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. And um, and maybe we'll have you back when we can, um, uh, you know, we can just do a whole Neil deGrasse Tyson episode. Um, yeah, any one of these topics, you know, talking about like philosophy and, and all this stuff, the ethics of advertising and whatever, these are all, these are all like hour long discussions. So any, any time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Thanks a bunch. Yeah, thank you. 
Okay. So, uh, uh, Nate has, uh, left the studio and, um, I didn't know what was in store, uh, for, uh, this interview. I, um, thought it was going to be all meat puns and it, it, you know, and some people may be disappointed that there weren't more meat puns because I mean, you always can have more meat puns. Um, and so I, I apologize for that. But uh, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. It's clearly a nice guy, smart guy, interesting guy. Nice break from the usual thumbsuckery of, um, of the remnant for a different kind of thumbsuckery for the remnant. Uh, so again, thanks to him. Thanks for uh, Stakem being a good sport about letting him come on. And thank all you guys. Uh, I will be recording more episodes next week. I hope to put a few in the can because then at the end of next week, I start my cross-country adventure um, to take my daughter to college. And um, what happens in the dog days of August um, remains unclear, but I'll have more information for you next week. And so until then, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.